I like to run. I feel good. Not always good during the run, but when I'm done, I always feel good. I always feel at peace. I feel like good things are going to happen. For me, it's a, you know, I don't know if you call that a runner's high or whatever. If I've done nothing, at least I've run four miles. I've accomplished something today. Hi, my name is Jeremy Stevens, and this is the For Love of Running podcast. Each episode, I interview one runner and learn their story behind the miles. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Jeremy Stevens. I hope you all are doing well. Welcome to episode 19, which has been in the works for a long time. Today's guest was mentioned in the very first episode by my brother, John Stevens, as an inspiration and motivation for rededicating himself to better wellness. Her name was brought up again in episode 8 by her son, Ben Hansen. In this episode, I interview Jill Hansen, who has been running for over 60 years. This conversation covers so much. We talk about what running was like for girls and women prior to Title IX. Jill details her competitive years running road races before training plans, GPS watches, and fitness apps ever existed. She also describes her coaching philosophy gained from 35 years of teaching physical education and coaching cross-country. Jill is full of energy, wisdom, and passion. This conversation has a lot of knowledge to offer that just might help you on your own running journey. I hope you enjoy episode 19 with Jill Hansen. Hi, Jill Hansen. Welcome to the For Love of Running podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm excited to talk to you and learn your story behind the miles. Um, Your name has come up by quite a few guests in this first season of the podcast, and a lot of them spoke very highly of you, and you just have a very unique story from what I've heard. So I'm I'm very interested to learn more. Oh, well, I'm excited to share it. That's great. So let's kind of start back, way back at the beginning. You know, where did you grow up? And then how would you describe your childhood? You know, it's interesting. My son did one of your podcasts, Ben Hansen. And when I listen to him, um, it's interesting. My story is going to be very much like his, or I should say his like mine. Um, I grew, I've been born, raised, live forever in Minnesota. I had a childhood where I had two older or two brothers, one older, one younger. And basically I was the third son in the family. This is pre-girls being able to do anything. So everything I did, um, I did with my older brother. When it was in the fall, we played football in the uh, winter we played hockey and in the spring and summer we played baseball and basically I lived in a neighborhood where there were like seven kids and we just played all the time and grew up on a lake so spent um, the summers when we were done playing our baseball game down to the lake and played on water for uh, for the summer so it was a great great childhood. That sounds really amazing. So a lot of outdoor time, a lot of sports with your brother and then the other kids in the neighborhood. You mentioned that you grew up in Minnesota. You're still there today. What do you really like and enjoy about the state of Minnesota? 
are 15,000 lakes. I love water and I love it whether it's for swimming, whether it's um, frozen and so you can ski on it, you can skate on it. Um, I think what's, and I'm sure this happens in other places, but we are, we have very four distinct seasons. So I enjoy nothing better than when the fall comes, the end of the fall, and I can hang up my bicycle and take out my skates or take out my skis or whatever. So everything just clearly, you know, changes about the time I'm done cross-country skiing and skating and stuff. Now it's time to take the bikes back out or, you know, whatever. So it's constantly changing. And that's what I like about Minnesota. That sounds really, really interesting and really cool and unique. Uh, You know, I live in Maryland and, and a lot of times people say, you know, the weather here changes, you know, just wait 48 hours, you know, and it changes. It's not as distinct. For example, we're in November right now and it's 70 degrees out and sunny. Whereas last weekend with Halloween, we had frost and it was cold. So it's maybe not as distinct as uh, as Minnesota, as you mentioned. It's very cold up there, right? Right. But then it freezes. So that is what, you know, makes it, I think, more fun than you guys who just get cold. You know, cold is not real fun unless you have something that you can do with the cold. So you're talking about lots of snow and ice? Yeah, one or the other. I mean, you know, perfect conditions would be that um, you get a big snowstorm and before the lakes froze and then it gets cold and then the lakes freeze and then they don't have snow on them. But usually what happens is the lakes freeze, you quick skate as much as you can, and then the snow falls and wrecks the lakes, but then you can um, play in the snow. That's really cool. So a lot of the sports that you mentioned are, you know, it's a great variety of them. You talked about your interests, you know, biking, skating, right, playing sports and things like that. So how did you eventually get involved in running? Well, I kind of was running all the time as a as a kid. Um, my dad ran when he was in um, high school and he kind of ran when we were growing up. That was way before any kind of running was going. So it was just something that my dad did for stress relief or weight control or whatever. And so he would take us running with him. So we had this track background. And back in the 60s, the University of Minnesota um, track coach, Roy Griak, was at St. Louis Park High School at the time, and he ran little kid races. And so my dad on Saturdays would take us to the um, track. We do that. And so that was the start of running. So it was always there. And then um, I guess my older brother, after trying football, trying other things, was not as good at that, as good at that. So he became a runner. And since he ran, um, I did everything he did. So I ran. There was no place for me to run competitively, but I could at least go out and run. And then there were people um, throughout my life who who saw I had I was a naturally um, good runner. Found out later it was more distance. You know, I hundred meter dashes weren't my thing, but. Um, 
people would take me to various races. And um, I know in ninth grade, I went to uh, Minnesota's first um, intercollegiate cross country race. Why they let a ninth grader go run, I don't know. I got to do that and I won that race. And then they'd take me to just where races would just pop up for girls to run and I'd go run them. And I was generally um, successful with that. So I liked running. Yeah, I guess most people do when you do well, right? At anything, you're going to love it more. You're going to enjoy it more. Um, there was a few things in there, Jill, that I wanted to touch on. One being, what decade are we talking about Where you, when you were growing up and you were getting involved in these sports, like when you were in high school? 60s, because I graduated in 70. Okay, so the 1960s. And then you mentioned that there were not a lot of opportunities for girls to compete. No. Did you participate in any sports or, or, or team sports when you were in high school? Or was it all these um, pop-up races? We couldn't. We couldn't. Girls were not allowed to play. So this was before? 73. Title IX. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I went to college opportunities started to pop up. Like there was a softball team. So I played um, softball. There was a um, swim team. So I was um, a swimmer and a diver because there were only, um, usually any swim team just had one good diver. And then there were always, they gave points out to three. So I uh, became a diver and could pick up a point for for the swim team, even if I wasn't a very good diver, got to play basketball, got to play tennis. And then in 73, the right to for girls to play on boys sports was passed in Minnesota. So um, I played on the uh, men's soccer team my senior year as a goalie. Wow, that's amazing. And so you're talking about Title IX, and I do want to get into that some more. What um, university or college did you attend? Gustavus Adolphus. It's a Division three school. Okay. So it's a Division three school. And like you said, when you're in college, you had more um, opportunities. What was that like for you? It was really fun because <laughs> every season they started a new sport. And I go, okay, I'll play that sport. And then they do it. And I go, okay, I'll play that sport. So, I mean, the problem was the really only true team sport I played on was softball and that wasn't such a good experience. I didn't get, for some reason, I didn't get along with the softball team. So um, I'd have to ride up in the front of the uh, vehicle with the coach. Um, That was really the only true team sport. I still am waiting at 68 to be on it on a true team. You know, like in swimming, you're it's a team, but you're just swimming for yourself. You're not, you know, it's not like a real game where you're trying to accomplish something, or like a cross country meet where you, you know, you're 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 needed. Track, you know, you're you're needed, but you're still running for yourself. Yeah, that's a really good point. A lot of running that you do, even if you're on a, a track team or something like that, it's it's individual, but then you score points for your team. So yeah, that's very unique. So I kind of want to go back a little bit and talk about Title IX. So what was running like for you or for girls in general before Title IX was passed? Again, very sporadic. They would, I think it was women trying to get opportunities for 
younger people to or younger women to be able to experience um, stuff. I know my freshman year, I mean, and there was no training. There was no nothing. All of a sudden there was a state meet for college um, women. So it was down in Mankato, which is only 12 miles from where we were. So my softball coach, who I got along with, even if I couldn't get along with the uh, with the softball players, took me down to to that meet. And um, it was just a track meet. And like I said, no training, no nothing. You just went out there, ran, and then went back home. So who put on these pop-up meets? I have no idea who did them. I mean, obviously, Mankato, which is a um, Division II school, you know, I don't know if it was their FIED department or what. They heard about them and they would grab a couple of girls and there we'd go do it. Sure. Do you remember at the time, was there kind of, were young women voicing the, the, the want to participate in these sports? No, not yet. I never heard that. Like I said, when I went to college and it was right about that time where sports were being introduced, you know, it wasn't very big yet. It was mostly, you know, the tomboys who were coming out to play um, in the different activities. Very different than it is now. So, Jill, when you were in high school, just so I want to make sure I understand this. So before Title IX, there were no girls sports no, we had what was called GAA, Girls Athletic Association. One day a week, we got the gym and we got to um, play things. We got to play games after school. It was a very discouraging um, time. I know from the time I became aware until at least till I went to college, I go, I really wanted to be a boy so I could play. Only boys were allowed to participate in high school sports? Right. Boys and girls could be cheerleaders. Wow. So that just shows like what life was like before Title IX. And so then Title IX eventually happens, you said in 1973. And then that's when all these other opportunities started to kind of come about. Yeah. And they came pretty fast. But unfortunately, 73, I was a senior and graduated at 74. So it was kind of a short um, opportunity for myself, which is why I'm convinced I turned to um, road races and stuff because it was a place where I could could compete. And you mentioned before when you were a senior in college that you were the goalie on the men's soccer team. So what was that experience like for you? The reason I did it is my um, boyfriend, now husband, was the goalie for the soccer team. And he was graduating, and the goalie who was um, going to step up wasn't – he could be challenged for the position, so we thought. There was no way he was ever challenged um, for the position. But um, I knew the soccer players, um, so they were very um, accepting of me. I got into one varsity game, and we um, – a couple of years ago, we um, down at Gustavus, they had uh, a celebration of the 50th um, anniversary of soccer down at Gustavus. And it was noted that the team that we played against, St. Mary's, was very upset that um, I got into the game, that they weren't um, pleased that, you know, a girl had to play against them in a, in a, in a real game. 
And like I said, our team was very, not only were they, um, uh, they were supportive, they were very encouraging. They were very excited that I was doing it. Yeah, that was going to be the next question I was going to ask you is how did your teammates, you know, treat you? And that's great that you had, uh, you know, a supportive team. This was kind of a cute story. And this was before Tom Hanks's um, famous line about girls uh, don't cry or, you know, we don't cry in, in baseball or whatever. There had been a shot on the goal and I'd gone up and I crashed into the guy coming in and we both fell onto the ground or whatever. And then the ball went out of bounds. But right away, there were tears coming out of my eyes. And um, one of my defenders came back and he said, we don't cry in boy sports. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's so funny how that's, a, that's such a connection to that movie, right? A League of Their Own. Now I just go, I, we were so many years ahead of you and not crying. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jill, you mentioned how you got in, more involved in competitive road racing following college. So what was that like for you? What kind of races were you running you know, after college? And you said earlier, you know, you didn't do a whole lot of training. So I'm guessing that probably changed for you, you know, after you graduated college. Yeah, it did. And um, as I found out, most of our races, again, this now is in the 70s. This is that start of that running um, craze that came. You know, this was, this is, you know, basically the same time Nike is coming up with the waffle stomper, you know, and um, the various different shoes, because up till then, there weren't, you know, a lot of running shoes. I know that I trained in basketball shoes. That's just because they just didn't have running shoes. I love it. They didn't have tights, you know, so when it got cold, you know, you ran in long underwear and uh, races were really fun to go to because it was a small group. I mean, if you had 200 runners, that was a huge race. You'd go to a race on Saturday and everyone would say, well, you know, there's a race so-and-so, you know, next week. And so, you know, you'd um, go and uh, run at that race. So it was kind of like word of mouth kind of stuff. And like we said earlier, when you have success, it's more fun. And yeah, I mean, I got hooked right away because A, there weren't that many women running. So I, you know, didn't have so many people I had to beat. <laughs> what kind of distance are we talking about? Because earlier you mentioned track was maybe not your thing, the shorter things, and you learned that longer distance rate, uh, running was your strength. So what kind of Ks, 10Ks, or did it get longer? 10Ks was basically the um, the road race back then. That's what you ran. They didn't have half marathons. They didn't have 10 milers. They just, you went 10Ks or you ran marathons. But, I mean, you know, occasionally you'd go to a 5K, uh, five-mile race. Um, I know I ran a Mother's Day race um, once it was four miles, you know, so they would bounce around a little bit but you know now 5k's is what everybody you know now they have 5k's 10 miles half marathons that kind of stuff but that it was mostly 10k's sure and that's a huge jump going from a 10k to a marathon so this is 1974 after 1974 when you graduated right in the, in the 70s this big running boom as you talked about 
how did your running kind of progress from there? It sounds like you had a lot of success with these 10K road races. You know, what was it like? Did you stick with those 10Ks for a long time or did you eventually like think about, hey, I want to do a marathon and then you then you move towards that? How we ended up doing a, a marathon, we had this so-called running club down in, in uh, Watertown where we were living and there were four of us. We were all teachers. It was three men and myself and uh, it was in the early summer. My husband, Dan, turned and he said, I'm going to run a marathon. When I had watched um, Kay Switzer run Boston Marathon, I had that kind of as a, a goal that, boy, I'd like to run Boston sometime. And didn't really think a lot about it, just that I'd like to do that sometime. Well, when Dan came home and said he was going to run a marathon, I said, well, fine, if you're going to run a marathon, I'm going to run a marathon. So there was nothing out there on how to train for a marathon, what you do and stuff like this. And we ran that summer, you know, three, four, five miles, whatever. But on Labor Day weekend, we got serious. We were like six weeks out from running the marathon. And we went on our first long run, which was 12 miles. I don't think any of us had run farther than 12 miles. I can't remember, but not much. And three of us did it. And um, when we ran, the one guy we ran with, he uh, uh, six miles out, stepped off the road and sprained his ankle. So he was done. And then Dan and I were heading back and something happened to Dan. I can't remember, but so he quit. So I had to run back and get the car and pick the two guys up from our from our run. That was the start of our training for the marathon. And then we told the guy who was not there yet when he came back, we said, oh, you know, we're all running a marathon on October 23rd. So we uh, then proceeded to run a little bit longer. Um, I think we maybe got up to 18 miles as a long run, clueless as to what we were doing. I mean, we still ran 10Ks because we figured that was good for speed. We were all track coaches, so we had an idea of kind of what you should be doing, at least. Then on the day of the race, it was interesting. It was a 12 o'clock start for uh, a marathon, which is kind of an odd time. We went over to the one friend's parents' house. We ate pancakes. We ate sausage. We ate eggs. Went to the starting line. There um, were maybe 300 people running, and uh, we ran four times around one lake and four times around another lake. So we were always coming by the one spot at the four-mile mark and then the eight-mile and like that. That was where your water was. Ran the thing in complete sweats. And uh, when I finished, I sat in a tree and waited for the others to um, finish the race. And that was our first marathon. Yeah, this is before, you know, GPS watches and fitness apps and those online training plans. What was the name of the marathon that was your very first? City of Lakes Marathon. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned the clothing, you mentioned your pre-race meal and things like that. How did the actual race go for you? Um, I ran 307 and um, won it. Yeah. Wow. So I qualified for Boston because Boston at that time, which is real interesting too, Boston at that time just had one standard. And so, well, there was a men's and a women's. Men had to go under 315. Women had to go under 330. Okay. 
I would imagine after that first uh, marathon, you kind of were hooked, right? You did well, you wanted to run Boston. So is that kind of where your running took you after that, just focusing on the marathon and improving in that kind of distance? It did, yeah, which was now looking back on it so many years later, that was a mistake because I became, I didn't drop my mileage below 70 miles a week. And when I was in getting ready for a race, I'd go up to 100 miles a week. It worked for a while. Um, I think that was just, I didn't need that kind of mileage, but that's what I did. So you bring up a really good point, right? When you're training seriously for some of these long distance races, especially the marathon, you have high volume, right? We've learned a lot about how that, at least a lot of you know top runners today run over 100 miles a week and things like that. So how did you balance all of that, right? You said you were a teacher, you were, you know, working, you're running competitively, and then eventually you were working on raising a family. So how did you work on balancing all of those things? You know, the lucky thing was I was a morning um, runner always. And so I would just get up before work and do my training then, which then cut down on doing any kind of speed or that kind of stuff. Everything was just always just miles, miles, miles. What year are we, or was this still in the seventies when you started to run the marathons? Yep. Okay. And you, you said how you're kind of like reflecting on, on that mileage. You said you didn't go below 70 most of the time. And then when you're training for a race, you're up in the hundreds for your mileage. You know, that's kind of a reflection on, on, on that experience. What else did you learn from from running these marathons? I know you you mentioned Twin Cities earlier. I also know that you know you qualified for Boston. So what was that like when you eventually ran Boston? I ran Boston six months after I qualified. So I got you know now it's however they do it. But back then, if you qualified that by December, then you ran in Boston the following year. The biggest concern I have. I have trouble with heat and Boston can get hot in the year. I ran Boston in 77. In 76, Boston had reached over 100 degrees temperature-wise during the race. So I spent, you know, as you're coming out of a, a Minnesota winter, heat was not your your main issue. So as it got closer, like in March, when it's warming up and people are running in shorts, I've got jacket and hat and gloves and trying to create this heat training that that we could do and when I went out to Boston uh, I made two major mistakes one we went out there and I the day before the race walked the um, freedom trail which was like about a 10-12 mile walk which Looking back on it, it was pretty stupid, but it was the first time I'd been to Boston, so I wanted to see all this stuff in Boston. And then on the day of the race, it was not as warm as 100 degrees. It was only in the um, like high 80s. I made a mistake at mile, like about mile seven. I ran, somebody was out with a hose and I ran under a hose. And if I can just say what Boston was like in 77, first of all, you went by five or six different mile marks. It would say mile six. And then a little further, it would say mile six. And a little further, it would say mile six. And water stops were just if people came out and gave you water. 
they were, you know, it isn't now planned where you had all this water. It was like people would be stand, just regular people standing out there giving you um, water or they'd give you an orange slice, nothing official. You just, they started you up in Hopkinton, the gun goes off and, um, you know, you end up in Boston. And anyway, back to at mile seven, I ran under a hose and um, I stopped sweating. And so by mile 18, just as I was about to start the hills, I just face planted on the sidewalk and I'm in an ambulance being taken to a hospital. I don't know my name, but what I know is that back then when you ran, they didn't have underwear in your running shorts. And if I wore underwear with my my running stuff, it just, it would crawl up and it would create havoc. So I don't have any underwear on. And I'm thinking, I know I'm going to a hospital and I know I don't have any underwear on. And back in our day growing up, your mother always used to say when you were going out of the house, make sure you have clean underwear on in case you have an accident. So I'm going there. Like I said, I'm not sure who I am, where I'm from, but I don't, I don't have that. And I get to the hospital. They dump me in ice. I have a temperature of 106. There's a lady in the uh, operating room with a temperature of 108. It was just bizarre. So that's how Boston in 77 ended for me. That's an hilarious story. As you mentioned, what your mom's advice and things like that. Yes. Boston's just so unique, right? Teenth, yep. And Patriot's Day. So it's that whatever Monday in, yeah, closest to the 19th. Yeah, you can get those hot days. And like you said, you're coming out of Minnesota winter. There's not a whole lot you can do to get conditioned. And even if you did, that's just really hard conditions to run a marathon in. Oh, I was so excited. And and then just so devastated when all of that ended the way it did. It was like, I felt I'd left everybody down in Minnesota who'd all been so excited that I was, you know, going to run in Boston and I end up in the emergency room. Yes. So Jill, did you ever get a chance to go back and run it again? Yep. 10 years later, I qualified at the Twin Cities Marathon and so went to Boston. And this time, I said, no matter what happens, even if I have to crawl, I'm going to finish this race. It started out at uh, 73 degrees, which was a pretty good temperature. Now it's much more organized. I mean, it's way bigger, though not big like it is now. The race was, was it was progressing. I wasn't running well, but it was racing. And I remember I had... Back then, um, instead of wearing a long shirt, I had long socks and, and, a, and a tank top. And I thought about throwing them off at mile 10. And I went, ah, you just don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to keep them. So I, I kept them. Well, um, as I said, as I was going up at mile 18, 19 in there, when you're climbing the hills, um, the weather started to change. Rain started to fall. And then the temperature dropped and the wind picked up from the east. So now you're running, you'd started at 73. I finished at the race at, um, it was 37 degrees and rain and wind. I was 
so cold and so miserable. And my husband was there with my oldest son, and they had gone to the uh, Red Sox game, and I was supposed to meet him. And so I'm walking the streets of Boston, just thinking to my whole, myself, as soon as I get to Dan, everything will be fine. I'll feel good as soon as I get to Dan. And then I got to Dan, and I didn't feel any better. And I'm crying because I feel so miserable. And they were giving free massages at this place where we uh, had met. So I'm trying to climb these stairs to go to uh, get a massage in this worker from the marathon is coming down the stairs. He takes one look at me and he says, you need to go to the medical tent. So he picks me up, walks me back to the medical tent. And there I am now being um, uh, fixed for hypothermia as opposed to the last time when it was just the opposite. But I finished. (laughs) (laughs) What a memorable Boston experience between those two races. Yes, yes. I don't really like Boston. <laughs> yeah. Was that the last time that you ran the race? The last time I ran Boston, yep. Yeah, having those two experiences, I would imagine, you know, convinces you you've you've done it and that's that's plenty. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And you know, I also found and I don't know, I mean I was not one who ran a lot of marathons. I think I only ran a total maybe of seven marathons. And the most fun One was the first, you know, no expectations, no, what's this going to feel like, you know? um, Yeah. So I wasn't really sad to go, okay, that's it. I don't need to do these anymore. Yeah. There's something to that first marathon. You don't really know what you have to expect. You kind of just experience it. I mean, it's a little bit different now with maybe having better ways to calculate your finishing time and things like that based on previous races. But when you were doing it, you know, those metrics and that data wasn't as easily available. And there's maybe that's something it's like a pure, pure distance running, right? You just kind of did it and had very little expectations and it went really well for you. Yeah. And you know, this is one thing, like I coached cross country for um, 35 years and what I feel that the kids have been missing for a long time is that they don't run, they don't feel how they run. Like when we ran, we knew when we were, what our body felt like when we were running six minute miles. We knew what our body felt like when we were running sevens. Um, Today they've got their watches and, and it's like, they don't have that, that, that feel, which I think that was, you know, now it just seems much more technical. I liked it when, yeah, you just went and you went how it felt. That's a really good point. I'm actually a cross-country coach as well. And, um, you know, I've done a lot of reading and things like that. And I'm guilty of it too. Like I run with a Garmin watch and sometimes you're so focused on the watch, especially with some of the racing and things like that. Whereas we forget if you run by feel, if you pay attention to your legs and your breathing and things like that, you might actually push yourself in a way that you you won't when you're carrying a watch because you're thinking, oh, I went out too fast or I I need to pick it up or, or you think you're, you're tied to that piece of technology. Yeah, yeah, which I mean, you know, that's got its benefits too. You have some idea what you're doing versus, you know, I think too, especially when you always start out, you always start out fast and you always think you're feeling fine. <laughs> and then the first mile hits and you go, oh boy, that wasn't good. 
Right. You said you ran seven marathons. We've talked a little bit, of, we've talked a good amount about Boston and then your first marathon. So what did you learn from from racing these marathons and, and maybe which one did you have the best finishing time overall? I know Duluth was one that you have ran in the past and things like that. You know, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because this is something that I learned later and did not know at the time, but um, back in 1977, this is the um, fall of 77, after that disastrous Boston. And um, there's a first time women's only national marathon, and it's held in Minneapolis. And so uh, we... I obviously if it's in Minneapolis and I'm going to run it, what I found out years later is this was a prelude to um, getting the women's uh, marathon into the Olympics. And they needed proof that there were enough women who were capable of running fast enough times to justify putting one into like I said, into the Olympics, which they did in 84 in um, Los Angeles. But um, that race uh, was the one that I really um, trained really hard for because I had to take six weeks off. I had to have um, a surgery, and so I had six weeks that I ha- I couldn't run or do anything. And then I had six weeks to come back for the that race. And so I um, I came into that time period off running huge miles and hoping that, you know, it would carry over. And I know that um, when I got the okay to go run, I ran, tried to run one mile and I, I like, I had to walk. I couldn't run a mile. And I'm thinking, how am I going to run 26 miles and I can't even run a mile? And so for the next two weeks, I'm running and it's, it's terrible. I can't run. I can't run a pace. I am walking. It's uncomfortable. You know, it's like somebody who's out of shape because, you know, cardiovascularism, you lose that really fast. And so I went with um, my uh, friend and my husband and I said, okay, we're going to run seven miles today. I said, no matter what. I said, we have to keep the pace at seven minutes. If I start to fall back, yell, scream, do whatever you have to to keep me up there. And so they said, okay. So we took off and maybe two miles into that race, it was like all of a sudden, boom, something clicked and everything was totally back. It was the most amazing experience I've had until I until I go race that marathon. But anyway, now the confidence is back. I'm ready. I go to the race, and um, it's on a Sunday morning. And uh, it was really cool to be in a race where you're just with women, no men around, you know, so you actually see your competition. But the problem is there aren't that many of us. Maybe there were 100. I can't quite remember. But it spread out pretty quick. I mean, you know, it wasn't like you were running in a group. You just basically ran the race by yourself. And um, I know as I was running it, this was the 
again, such a fantastic experience that I never have had since. But at mile five, all of a sudden, I became like totally in tuned and just into my body. I was totally unaware of anybody on the outside. It was just my body and my head and I, we were just running and mile after mile, not aware of anything. Unfortunately, until mile 23, I stumbled out of this zone that I had been in and 23 miles. It was like, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to finish this race? Uh, my husband had been riding a bike and he came up to me and he goes, fourth place is just 50 yards in front of you. And I remember turning to him and said, I'll be lucky if I finish this stupid thing. I finished it. And uh, that experience was so awesome that, uh, and like I said, I've never experienced it since. It almost sounds like you experienced some sort of running flow state, right? Where everything was just working perfectly. It was just click, click. Oh, my gosh. And The miles just clicked by. Yeah. Never had it since, but it sure was a fun experience. Was that your fastest performance in the marathon? Yep. Yep. I took fifth and ran 250. Wow. That's amazing. And so you said that race was set up to show that women can run fast times in the marathon and that the marathon deserves to be a part of the Olympics. At that race, 15 women went under three hours. Wow. And the winning time was like 247. So you were right there. Yeah, 50 yards. <laughs> yeah, what, an, what an experience. Fourth place. What's the difference? It doesn't make any. Yeah. So there was no competition whatsoever. It was just like, I just going to finish this thing. So did uh, the women's marathon get added to the next Olympics following that race? Well, um, because you had Olympics in 80 and that would have been too close. So 84 is when um, it got added. Okay. You know, you mentioned that you ran seven marathons. Would that be your favorite distance or was do you like more of the shorter stuff with like the 10Ks? There were two distances I really liked. I liked five miles. I love five miles. You know, um, that always seemed to be the distance where you don't have to go as far as a 10K. So you get that 1.1 or whatever out of there, or I guess it's two 2Ks. But um, five mile was my most favorite. You didn't get many of those races, but that was the race that it it never hurt like the uh, like the ten k hurt. You know, you uh, it was a much more comfortable. And I liked, I really did enjoy um, a half marathon. Was kind of uh, a fun distance. Didn't have to train as hard. You know, the problem with the marathon is that you have a date out there, and everything is aiming for that date. And it doesn't matter what weather shows up, how you feel or anything. You have to go that day versus like even a half marathon. If I pick a half marathon and the weather's lousy, um, that doesn't make any difference. I can run another half, you know, two weeks later. The marathon, you're, it isn't like you can go, well, if this doesn't work well, I'll, um, I'll uh, just do one in two weeks. I don't think you can competitively do that. You've you've put too much of your of your body, your head, you know, everything to be able to come back quickly on a marathon. 
Sure. Yeah. Racing a marathon, it beats you up. It beats up your body. It beats up you mentally and physically, emotionally. It's it's an investment of time and, and all of those energies that you mentioned before. You said that, you know, the the Duluth marathon was a day that you never experienced again. That was um, the women's nationals. Oh, sorry. The women's nationals it, in Minneapolis. Right. Did, did you spend the next few years trying to recapture that performance or did you decide, Hey, I'm going to kind of step away from the marathon for, for a while. I mean, cause like you said, you were three minutes away from the leader. Did you ever have, you know, bigger aspirations? Did you want to eventually maybe try and qualify for the Olympics or did you think about the Olympic trials or anything like that? From a little kid on, I wanted to be in the Olympics. My dad ended up having me speed skate because that was going to be my my key to the Olympics because speed skating was a, um, in, Minna, in Minneapolis, there was a speed skating club that, like I said, that was going to be my avenue. And it, it was interesting because we did um, dry land training and on dry land training, I was running and on running, <laughs> um, I excelled on the running part. If you if you could take my running and put it out onto the onto the ice, man, that would have been great. But what I did find out about that is when I skated, they only let me skate 400 meters. That was the farthest I could go. I did not have the speed to do well in 400 meters. If I could have skated. 10K, I think I could have been, I'm not saying I could have been Olympic, but I, I would have been more successful. But my age, that's all the farther they let you go as a girl, 400 meters. So you had Olympic aspirations, but not necessarily in, in running. Yes, Olympics. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. I, I've looked at Olympic athletes and have been in awe of them since I was a little kid. So, Jill, I know that, you know, you had a career as a teacher for quite some time and you're a physical education teacher. Is that correct? Yep. So I never worked a day in my life. I just played for 35 years. That's amazing. And that's everyone's hope and dream, right? A little kid I played and as a big kid, I got to play. Well, there's something now that is called the morning mile and it's like this popular health initiative that it's to fight childhood obesity, right? Children, they walk or run a mile or more than one mile before school. And I know that you had a long career as a, as a physical education teacher, and you kind of started a similar program. And I learned that when I interviewed Ben. Right, yep. How did that come about for you? Like, how did you come up with this idea and get that implemented? Well, I was at a, um, at a workshop, and somebody had suggested this idea, uh, but it wasn't, it was a little bit different. It was just trying to get kids out running. And the idea was for um, a certain amount of time, keep track of kids running and seeing if they could run a marathon. So I had a fantastic um, school. This was when I was in elementary. And I got the teachers to agree that they would take their kids out once a week and run for 20 minutes and keep track of how far their kids went. And then the lunchroom, the recess ladies, we had two days where um, kids during recess could, if they wanted, run laps during recess. 
And so then what they would do is the mechanics of it, they just had a piece of paper and they punched a hole every time. I had a 400 meter track around and as they came by, they got their papers punched and then I'd keep track. And um, as the kids got to five miles, they got a certificate and then 10, 15, or when they ran the 26 miles, then they'd get their Montrose Marathon t-shirt. And it was a class competition as well, so that the class that won got to go to a swimming pool party at the high school, um, along with all the kids who made the marathon. So um, I know that ran, um, well, I was there for 10 years. And so for 10 years, we had the Montrose Marathon. And really, I started it in hopes, because I was cross-country coach, and I was hoping to be able to... uh, find runners who would then want to be cross-country runners when they got to high school. Yeah, so it had like two benefits, right? You're helping improve the health of young students and things like that, and then also helping you in the future, hopefully. That's that's pretty clever. But I know, uh, I remember one day being out there with my Fayette class. They were running, and then it was a Tuesday, and so the, the school kids were running, and I go, God, everybody outside was running. And I go, I've died and gone to heaven. Everybody's running. What were some of the benefits that you saw in the in the students, you know, doing this this running? And like I know Ben, your son Ben was a big participator in this, and this really kind of helped shape him as a young young boy, like to improve his running. So what did you see? Did you see any um impact? Did other teachers comment on like how students were maybe doing better in the classroom or, or, you know, what was that like? That was before they really, you know, they were doing research on, um, you saw that physical activity does improve mental uh, abilities. We also had a program down at Montrose. And again, these teachers were fantastic. We had aerobic in the aisles. So every morning, um, after the principal welcomed and gave the announcements, kids stood up and we had a five minute routine where they were doing aerobics in the um, aisle. I continue to be upset with the fact that we know that physical activity helps improve your academics. And yet look at what gets cut or what they think is important. Fayed one time a week um, or every other day. And what we're doing is we're telling people, oh yeah, you need 60 minutes, but but we don't have time for it. You'll just have to find it yourself. If you wanted kids to learn, we want kids to learn to read. If you only did reading every other day, they're not going to learn. Same thing with physical activity. Unless you get them doing it all the time, it's not going to be a habit. And so um, there was my soapbox. I believe that we should just be in our schools. We should be having kids do it every day. So they realize they need it every day. That's a really great point. And that kind of connected the question I was going to ask you is what, what could schools do differently or, or improve? And it seems like not taking away physical activity. Um, you know, I teach in the high school and, and they have phys ed as a freshman and that's it. Yep. There's benefits from, from that physical activity. And we're seeing it now more than ever, especially with the coronavirus. So many young people now are, are even more sedentary because they're having to do school online. They're having to do things at home. They're not 
able to access the sports that maybe they could before the pandemic. And so much screen time is not good for anyone. So yeah, I, I definitely am a big in, a, in agreement with you on that for sure. But you know, now when you bring up the uh, the COVID virus, this is one thing that I have been amazed with, at least where I live, is the number. Now, these are adults. I'm not seeing the kids, but the adults, the number of adults who are taking time, they're out walking. Back when we moved here 40 years ago, people knew who I was because it was that idiot who was out running. This particular spring, summer, now even in the fall, the number of people who are out exercising has been mind-blowing. So I see that as, at least for grown-ups, it's been a, a, a silver lining for, for this pandemic. Yeah, definitely people are getting out more, which is a good thing. Definitely, I think it'd be great to, to see this continue, you know, post post pandemic, you know, get get people out because I think people are realizing the benefits of getting moving. You need it. Yep. Now it'll be interesting when the winter comes and for us anyway, to see if that stops or if they they continue. But it'll be interesting. Right. So Jill, you coach your son in cross country and track in high school and then he went on to run for the University of Minnesota. So what was that experience like for you coaching your son? And, you know, what did you learn as a parent and a coach? Um, you know, with Ben, uh, it was, uh, he was easy to coach. Um, ben was um, highly motivated. Um, he was, uh, he was a good, um, a good leader with the kids. It, it was nice to be around him until it was state meet time. I hated it at state meet time. I didn't want to coach him because I would want him at the line. For heaven forbid that I would want him at the line 15 minutes before the race. And 10 minutes before the race, he'd be saying he had to go to the bathroom and that kind of stuff. So he drove me crazy that way. But it was um, fun to be part of his of his life, you know, it gave me more time to be with him as uh, a teenager when lots of times teenagers are pulling away. Um, I think more, because I coached um, three of my four kids, they were cross-country runners. It was interesting, more interesting coaching my youngest one, and he ended up running at the university uh, for one year as a, um, after his four years in at at Gustavus, he um, he was one who I actually he never talked at home. He was a baby; they didn't have much to say. He was a hard nut to crack, and yet when I saw him with his friends, it was like going, "Wow, that's what my kid is like." It was a real. It was fun to see to see that. But I think the biggest experience is that extra time that you get with your kids that you normally wouldn't. And as a matter of fact, in teaching them, because I had them in school too, again, more time that I got to spend with my own kids. And they all have some sort of love for running, right? Because of, you know, the way that you lived your running life and then being their coach and things like that. That's really special. Well, all of them, but one, the, the, that youngest one, the one who is probably the most successful 
no, he never liked to run. He loved to race. He hated to run, which I find very interesting. He didn't enjoy the training part, which you spend most of the time doing. Right. Yep. Didn't like that. That's a difficult trade-off. How would you explain your, your approach to coaching? You know, is it different now than when you began? What did you learn as a coach? I learned early on that these young runners were in the infancy of their running career. My main goal was that when they left high school, that they would continue to have a passion for running, that they would want to continue to run, that they hadn't been beaten into the ground, and so they never wanted to run again, but that they found that this is a great lifelong activity that they can enjoy. That's well said. Yeah, I think that's probably... Maybe the hope of most coaches, it doesn't always work out that way. Some some coaches are very business-like and, and can be very intense, especially with running, with the mileage. And you really have to consider, especially in high school, how different you know a freshman is compared to a senior, right? They come in as boys and girls, and then they leave almost as men and women. So you have to be very careful as a coach. But that's it's like a great philosophy that a lot of coaches should consider. I think cross-country coaches as a group, you know, do think that way, you know, and, and they do have a, well, I guess all coaches probably have a passion for their sport, but this is one, you know, that can go on forever. But I think I would have much rather undertrained an athlete than overtrained an athlete. And I, and more, most importantly is, you know, have fun. Cause if you aren't having fun, you probably shouldn't be here. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you get to that overtraining point, it usually leads to injury or burnout. And those two things are so negative. So why would, why would you want your athlete to get to be in that space? And they're generally your, your better athletes who are the ones who, if a little is good, a lot is better. And that unfortunately was the way I trained myself. A little is good, then God, doing twice as much must make me fantastic. Not a good uh, training model. So you learned some lessons from yourself and then kind of applied that to your own, you know, student athletes. Yes. And the biggest one is, um, and think about this, a lot of runners think this way. Well, you know, I can get an extra mile in or I can stop now and stretch. Oh, I was the, we'll put in another mile. Who needs to stretch? So, yes, I'm down there. Um, flexibility. I'm preaching flexibility constantly. I go, there's another thing I learned the hard way. Yep. You got to do more than just run miles. Yeah. And it's hard too sometimes as a runner to be patient, right? We want to be good quickly. Or if we have success, we want to double that success. But development takes time. And if you don't do the extra things, and if you overdo it, unfortunately, a lot of times we learn the hard way of oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And you learn by getting hurt or burning out. And then you want to be fixed yesterday. And you're not going to be fixed for three more weeks down the road. Yes. Like you said before, when you had that six-week break from, from surgery, it's almost like beginning again, right? When you have that break and you start again and you want to get fit and you want to get fit fast and it doesn't work that way. That is true. 
So Jill, I know you're still very active. You're into swimming, biking. You said skiing, running, still part of your life. You know, why is that important to you to still be so active, you know, at this stage in your life? It's interesting. Um, I have a older brother. He's three years older than me, the one who um, I was always chasing after. And he's 71 and he is still running, but he runs for weight control. I run partly for weight control, but I, I like to run. I feel good. Not always good during the run, but when I'm done, I always feel good. I always feel at peace. I feel like good things are going to happen. For me, it's a, you know, I don't know if you call that a runner's high or whatever. If I've done nothing, at least I've run four miles. I've accomplished something today. Now, it's interesting. Um, Both of us, within a year of each other, and like I said, we've both run for over 60 years. And we both ended up, uh, like I said, within a year of each other, of having um, heart issues. And it's the heart issues that they're, that they're doing studying on, they're only working with elite runners on this, but elite runners who have run long miles. Now, I can't run like I did. I was back to running 100 feet, and then I had to walk, and 100 feet. And it was sort of like, I go, well, crud, this is how people feel when they don't, when they don't, I go, I can understand why people don't like running if this is what you have to do to run. I mean, running up till then had never, ever hurt like that. I mean, I had bad runs, you know, everybody's got bad runs, but these were like, you know, 200 feet and I'm I'm done running and I'm out of breath and then I have to start again and the legs are all heavy and it was like I I got new appreciation for people who don't like to run now I feel bad because my brother spent his whole life not ever getting that wow that was awesome mine are starting to come back to more awesome but it's a struggle so I have like I said a lot of um um, admiration for people who running just did not seem natural and that they had to work at. I guess that's what it is. I never had to work at running. And now I have to work at running and I go, God, this isn't nearly as much fun as it was used to be. That's a great reflection, right? It came naturally to you and now you kind of can see and feel like what it feels like for many, most runners out there. You know, that run, walk kind of running. <laughs> you know, I go... This literally takes a long time. (laughs) So Jill, how do you measure success now with your running? Is it just getting out there in the sense of accomplishment of maybe running four miles and then that that feeling, maybe that runner's high, that things are going to be positive, it's going to be a good day? Or how do you measure it at all? Do you train for anything specifically anymore or is it just? Nope. I stopped racing a number of years ago for several reasons. One, the biggest one was (laughs) I'm not getting any better. As a matter of fact, I'm getting way worse. So I go, why would I want to do this? This isn't very fun. That was part of it. The other thing, the expense. I go, what? You know, we used to sign up for a race, even for a marathon for 10 bucks. We aren't paying $100 to have a race. And I'm looking and going, you know what? I don't need to pay somebody X amount of money for me to hit a watch and run 5K and come back and see what my time is. I can do that myself. That was another reason, but most... So it was the expense and um, 
I wasn't getting any better. So why, why do that? So then I found other things to do, like cross-country ski. I, I had no history with cross-country skiing. So every time I'd go out there, that would be something to look forward to. You know, well, maybe I can ski faster. So that was something. But the problem with cross-country skiing, it's so snow-dependent that there are some years you can't even ski. So now it's, um, I just do it. Just I just have to do something, whether it's ride a bike, swim, run, something. Yeah, you seem like a very high-energy excited person, right? You have a lot of energy. Do you feel different when you don't get that physical activity? Yes. Not as bad. When I was younger, my husband used to throw my sweatpants at me when we'd be having a fight and he'd say, go run. Because yeah, oh, yeah, I ran by running. I could handle anything, any problems thrown my way. I didn't do well when I hadn't exercised and problems were thrown my way, which was a really nice thing because for my job, at least in the fall and in the in the spring, I could ride my bike to school. So, I, you know, by the time I got to school, I had exercised eight miles, felt calm, felt good. And then when I'd come home from teaching or coaching and I'd be so tired, a couple of miles into my bike ride, now suddenly I'm all fired up again. So exercise, I need it. It helps my energy, both good and bad. So Jill, just a couple of final questions before we wrap up our conversation. You know, like you said, you've run for over 60 years. You've a lot of experience. What advice would you give to any beginners out there who are starting their running journey? When I go to run, I change things. I wouldn't always like go out and run three miles, run the same thing. I go, I think you've got to make it fun. You've got to do different things. Like I like to run telephone poles. I always feel good when I run telephone poles because I run faster and then I get to recover, you know, just do different things. Just don't always run the same thing. Try to find somebody to to run with. That makes such a difference. You know, running by yourself, it's easy because you can just step out the door, go anytime you want. But it's also very motivating if you say, okay, I'm going to meet you at eight o'clock and we're going to go do that. You know, do it with other people. And I think racing is fun. It's a great way to to meet new people and, and to see how you are progressing. You know, um, I know I don't race, but I'm not progressing. So <laughs> I'm going to wait till I'm 70 and then I'm going to start racing again because I figure that'll be my new start. That's awesome. Can you explain what you mean by running telephone poles? Oh, you know, that's, it's just an interval. You know, we have telephone poles all out here, you know? So yeah, we do telephone where you'll, you know, be running on the road and then you hit a telephone pole and you run fast to the next telephone pole and, or maybe you run three telephone poles and then you take a rest, you know? Yeah. So just a visual landmark, just doing a fart lick, picking up the pace and then having fun with that, that, that fun speed play. Yes. And, you know, that is what I have really, for the first time, I have been able to do. I, I do true fartlek where I run until I go, ah, good enough. And then I'll change it. And then I'll go, okay, it feels like it's time to go again and go. And, you know, as a coach, 
I control their fartlek runs. I mean, here's how far you're running and here's how much you get to recover. And then you're going again. Well, now I'm doing it, just doing it by how I feel. And that's really kind of fun. Don't know how good it is for training, but it mentally, mentally it's huge. Yeah. So it sounds like a big thing is keep it fun, have variety, don't always do the same thing. And and doing those little speed intervals, that's one way to incorporate that. Just running for weight or you're running, you know, for stress. Change it up. Absolutely. So Jill, here's the big question. Why do you love running? I love how I feel when I'm done running. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I do. And see, now this has been tempered because right now the running isn't really nearly as, and mentally is where I'm hung up on the running now because I never know when I go out to run what's going to happen. Am I going to be able to run four miles or only going to be able to run 100 yards? So that's throwing things off, but I keep trying. Before that, I never, I didn't ever have to force myself to go out and run. It was just like I wanted to do it because I liked when I was out there. I I love being outdoors and it's a great way to be outdoors. And it can be a cold day when you're out there and yet you can stay warm. It's It's just so simple and so easy and I think so peaceful. You know, you can solve the world's problems in a five-mile run. That's such a great point. And that reminds me of the interview I did with your son, whereas whatever problem he was having, he could kind of solve it on a run. Yeah, don't you find that when you run? That- oh, yeah, the, mental, the mental clarity that you can find on a run is amazing. Yes. And as you were talking about before, there's people that, you know, struggle with running or they might not really like it. But then I feel like there get you get to a point where it's this positive choice that you make and you get out the door and then you just feel better. And you only really can experience it if you do run. Like there's so many people that I don't know for one reason or another, they just don't enjoy it. I don't know if they expect too much too soon or something like that. But if you put in the time and you build up that that stamina and that endurance, it's a lifelong habit that just gives you so much more than what you put into it almost in a way. Yeah, no, um, but you know, then that takes you off onto a whole different conversation in that. um, Have you, did you, have you read the book Born to Run? I have a few times. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it was Nike who switched and made everybody (laughs) a runner, you know, by having the, the shoes and that kind of stuff. But maybe, Maybe there are people who aren't born to run. Could be. It could be. That's a good point. You know, um, maybe they could be born to bike or born to swim or just born to move. But I, yeah, running is the easiest way to do it. It's right there. It doesn't cost anything. That's a good point. We're born to move. It's about finding which form of movement that you enjoy the most, right? You shouldn't be doing something over and over again if you don't enjoy it. If you don't like it, find something else, but find something. Yes. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say one thing, which I think pretty much describes me. My husband wakes up in the morning thinking, what is he going to have to eat today? I wake up in the morning and think, what am I going to do today for exercise? It's, It's an interesting philosophy. 
Well, Jill, I can't think of a better way to end our conversation. I want to thank you so much for coming on this episode of For the Love of Running and learning your story behind the miles. Well, thank you for uh, letting me babble on about my story, Jeremy. I appreciate it. That was so much fun. Jill and I could have gone on talking about running for hours. I really enjoyed her perspective and philosophy about running that has changed over the course of her life. The conclusion we both came to at the end is important to remember. It's about finding the movement that you enjoy and makes you feel good, whether it's running, biking, or another sport. I, like Jill, run because it makes me feel good. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Thank you very much for your insight, Jill. Thanks to the podcast team. Thanks to Elisa from Red Start Creative for our logo. Thank you to John Vogel for the original music. Thanks to my producer, John Stevens. And finally, thanks to you for listening to this episode of For the Love of Running. You have a lot of podcast choices out there. I appreciate you choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Share this with your running community and connect with us on social media. Do you know someone who would be a great interview for season two of the podcast? Send us a message at For the Love of Running Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, I'm your host, Jeremy Stevens. Happy running!